from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. What we do know is that the things that are allowed to stay up um, kind of, you know, are consistent with the official line by and large, which is very much a pro-Russian talking point, in some cases even using the same rhetoric, and actually in many cases amplifying Russian disinformation. You know, a lot of of authoritarian political systems, a lot of non-democracies don't have good information at the top levels because citizens don't speak freely. There aren't mechanisms like referendums and elections where you get a true test of what people's preferences and choices are. Mm -hmm. Um, And people in the system are kind of afraid of the shoot the messenger dynamic. I'm Sarah Fenske. As Russia continues to try to push into Ukraine, international attention has increasingly turned to China. Is this a moment with potential for the Asian superpower, or does it have no easy options? Well, my next guest here has some thoughts. Sheena Chestnut-Greitens is the former First Lady of Missouri and an associate professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. She focuses on East Asia, American national security, and authoritarian politics and foreign policy. Sheena, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad to be with you. I wish we had slightly happier topics to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit grim, but so important to understand what's happening here. I want to start with something that may be easy, but I think it's also really complex. How would you characterize China's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, I think it's a great question to start with. We really are, I believe, at an inflection point for world politics in many respects right now, both economically and in the security realm. And China is a pretty central actor um, in both of on, on both of those pieces. Um, you know, China, prior to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, had signed what um, they referred to as a no-limits partnership in early February um, with Russia. And we don't know exactly what was said in, in those conversations between Xi Jinping and, and Putin, um, but my best guess guess is that that Putin, who appears to have miscalculated um, the consequences of his own invasion plan, um, probably conveyed something really misleading to Xi if if he provided any information at all. Um, And so I think, you know, what we've seen is is China a little bit caught off guard and a little bit on its back foot in terms of its response to the invasion itself. Um, But despite that, you know, one of the things that's emerged very clearly is that China is not backing off of that no limits partnership. it, the most consistent things that it has said are to assign primary blame to NATO and the United States for this crisis, not to Russia, um, and to express opposition to the sanctions that a majority of the world's countries and economies are, are now participating in. Um, and that's even before you get to these recent reports about backfilling sanctions, providing direct economic and military support, um, which I think would be even a, a further game changer. Um, but, you know, we've really seen, despite some rhetoric about Chinese principles and and um, 
is sort of, you know, respecting territorial integrity and, and things like that. Um, but in practice and, and in its, its actual statements, China has leaned pretty hard toward its partnership with Russia, even though this invasion may not have been what they were expecting. Hmm. And what makes you think that maybe they were a little bit caught off guard by this? It sounds like maybe Putin was laying the groundwork. I want a no-limits partnership. He wanted them on board, but maybe they weren't fully aware of, of what was to come? Yeah, you know, well, to be honest, this is this is speculation. I'll be I'll be very clear that sure. I, you know we don't know what was said in in that meeting. Um, but what we saw in the initial period after the invasion was the Chinese political system really defaulting to some of its sort of tried and true rhetoric phrases that would have been pre-approved, by, uh, you know, for the press and the propaganda system to to put out into the world, um, and uh, and. And so um, sometimes that can indicate, a, you know, a Chinese political system that is sort of trying to figure out what its approach is, is going to be. Um, but, um, but the other, you know, interesting question here is that, um, you know, a lot of, of authoritarian political systems, a lot of non-democracies don't have good information at the top levels because citizens don't speak freely. There aren't mechanisms like referendums and elections where you get a true test of what people's preferences and choices are. Mm-hmm. Um, and people in the system are kind of afraid of the shoot the messenger dynamic. And I think we're seeing a lot of that play out with, with um, Putin. I think you see the pathologies of this very personalized dictatorship that he's created in both the military, the informational, um, and the sort of diplomatic response that, that Russia's had. Um, but it's also possible that, that those information dynamics are playing out in, in China, um, where, you know, despite a whole raft of evidence that the world watched um, unfold over the months before the invasion, um, that, you know, there may, may have been very particular beliefs um, in a system that really depends, uh, you know, to an incredible degree on Xi Jinping. Um, and we just don't know exactly what he believed. And ultimately, in the Chinese political system, that's the key question a lot of times that matters. And I think it was here because he'd put a really personal stamp on this No Limits partnership and on his personal relationship with Vladimir Putin, who he's now met dozens of times over the past decade. Hmm. So the U.S. seems to really be warning China. I think that the press secretary, Jen Psaki, said on Monday, the consequences for China would be significant if they aided Russia. Is that something Thing that, that China would be afraid of or, or even take seriously. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, China China did not anticipate um, that, you know, backing Russia would lead to threats to its own economic survival. And I think that's where we've seen so far the limits of, of China's supposedly no limits partnership. Um, so we've seen reports that Chinese actors uh, have said, OK, we'll comply with the sanctions um, because to do so would uh, to to not comply with the sanctions would be, you know, um, something that would cut them off from access to the the global financial system. And both these Chinese entities and China's economic growth really depend on that. Um, So I think, you know, you've seen some initial limits. The question is if there's any seams or gaps in the sanctions regime, especially ones where China can benefit financially or economically from that, um, then I think you'll see China jump at the opportunity to provide that support. Hmm. Under the example of Visa and MasterCard pulling out and and UnionPay stepping into the breach immediately um, is a good example of, of where I think you'll see Chinese companies ready and able to uh, ready and willing to provide assistance as long as it's it's in their own self-interest. So with the economic um, issues just paramount, it sounds like, what's the benefit of going all in with Russia like this? 
You know, I think that a lot of what we're seeing is that um, China has really, its its response has really been filtered through this prism. It's decided that it's engaged in a strategic competition with the United States and that it needs Russia as a viable actor to counter, um, you know, the, the United States and the coalitions that the United States is able to put together to, to limit and constrain Chinese influence. And so I think what we'll see is a, a China and, a, and Beijing doing everything it can to support Russia because it views Russia as a critical partner in that long-term competition and, and relationship um, to counter the United States and the influence of the United States and its allies and partners around the world. Hmm. So we know Russia has, has run into some resistance it perhaps did not expect in Ukraine. Is there a downside for China in being so closely allied with Russia beyond you know some of the economic economic questions that you were talking about. Is this a good partner for them if maybe this is a a nation in decline? You know, it's not the call I would make. I think there are lots of long-term strategic costs to China, both economically, but also in terms of China's role in the world. Um, one of the things that's become apparent is that China talks about, you know, re- how the current world order is unfair. But Beijing really doesn't have a good positive replacement um, on offer here. It's been very passive. It's talked about, we hope there are negotiations, but done really nothing to facilitate concrete problem solving. Um, and I also think, you know, it, it, the lessons of, of this are, it's far too early to sort of say what exactly what lessons to draw. Um, but this could have real spillover effects on China's own goals vis-a-vis Taiwan. And so I think that's another real potential downside to something that the Chinese Communist Party has for years now called a core interest. So so walk us through that. How could this have an impact on the Taiwan situation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We've already seen, you know, in the past year or two, some, some signs of increased pressure on Taiwan um, and in terms of overflights over the air defense identification zone and, and other forms of pressure. Um, so I think that, you know, both Taipei and Beijing will be watching what military lessons to draw and trying to figure out how those do and don't transfer to a very different geographic um, context. I think they'll be looking at how the information space of this conflict played out. And the Ukrainian government, in defense of its freedom and its sovereignty, has, has done just an amazing job communicating with its own people and with the world to rally support. I think they're watching that that space as well. Um, I think they're watching the effect of the sanctions and trying to figure out, you know, Russia's a much smaller economy than China's. Mm-hmm. So these countries that have been willing to you know, really put economic pressure on Russia, will they be willing to do the same thing um, vis-a-vis China if that's more economically costly to them? Um, and then I think, you know, they'll, they'll be um, looking at what Taiwan does in response. So these lessons aren't static. Uh, I think Taiwan will be looking a lot at what made Ukrainian resistance so effective, how it was that they survived long enough to allow international military and diplomatic support and economic support to really come to bear. Um, in in Ukraine's defense. And so there's a lot Taiwan could do that they haven't done yet to make Beijing's, you know, pressure or an invasion um, much harder. Mm. Um, So a lot of what how this plays out is going to depend on some of the choices that, that Taiwan makes about its own defense in the coming months and maybe years. So they may be watching as Taiwan watches Ukraine. Taiwan's going, hey, there's some great lessons we can take from this. And, and that is frightening to China, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, so for example, Taiwan has um, has a very different. They have conscription, but they have a very different manpower system. The civilian reserves um, probably could use a lot of rethinking. There are a lot of different lessons about what kinds of arms sales or security assistance from the U.S. and other partners might actually be useful. Um, the downside, though, is that one of the things that um, the Beijing and the PLA may be learning from this is that Russia's mistake was not to hit as hard as it could have in the early few days of the conflict and try to end it quickly. Oh, boy. That's a, con- yeah. That might be it's the lesson the U.S. does conflict. not want them to take from this. <laughs> right. So it's this protracted conflict that has a, and, and the fact that, that Zelensky and the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people survived for long enough to appeal for help and to get, you know, security assistance and weapons flows and to allow the sanctions to work has really made a huge difference in, you know, derailing Putin's plan, which was essentially as far as I can tell to decapitate the Ukrainian government and have this war end in three days. Um, And so, you know, unfortunately, my, you know, one lesson that China could be uh, taking from this is how do we bring more force to bear to force an end to a conflict faster if we choose to initiate one? And then obviously on the Taiwan side, they'll be thinking about how do we keep that from happening? Um, So this is really an interactive game, and it's just too early to say um, how a lot of it's going to play out. But the, the stakes are obviously very, very high. We've seen just incredible tragedy and carnage and, and suffering for the people of Ukraine in this. Um, and Taiwan is a small island with no easy way to evacuate civilians if um, if uh, bombardment or um, something like a blockade is, is put in place. That could be sort of catastrophic for the civilians uh, and, and, you know, women, children, families in in Taiwan. So the stakes are really high, and it's going to be really important that the U.S. and its partners have, you know, a lot of serious thinking and conversations about, you know, what to do about Ukraine, but also then what the implications are um, if if something similar were ever to, to play out in Asia. We're talking today to Sheena Chestnut-Greitens, the former First Lady of Missouri, an expert in foreign policy, authoritarian politics, and East Asia. Uh, She's an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Sheena, there's a lot of people in America who would like to see Beijing play a role in offering Russia an off-map, that this would maybe be the solution to this conflict. Do you think that's a realistic hope? I wish I could be more optimistic about China offering uh, an off-ramp here. Um, first of all, I think the real question and the right way to view this is what kind of off-ramp would Vladimir Putin take? Mm. Because the same sort of miscalculations and flawed thinking that got him into um, a, an invasion that he clearly badly miscalculated um, are going to make it harder for him to update and say, okay, this isn't going well. What's my best, you know, what's my best bet? Mm-hmm. Um so when people don't have good information, their way, they don't, he, he may not be able to weigh costs and benefits well and to identify an off-ramp that would make sense for the Russian people and, and, um, and certainly for the people of Ukraine who um, didn't deserve uh, to be attacked by a war criminal. Yeah. Um, so, but on, on China's role specifically, um, you know, China has, has sort of floated trial balloons about, well, China could help, but we know what it would look like for someone to actually try to play a, a negotiating role. We've seen that with a number of European leaders. We've seen that with the government of Israel. Um, China's sort of support for negotiation seems to be more rhetorical than anything right now, um, in part because 
what might actually help is trying to to restrain um, Putin and his government to identify the off ramp that would would make sense for them. And so far, we've seen you know not a lot of sign that they're willing to do that. Um, if anything, they're, they've leaned harder into that partnership. Um, especially if these reports about um, economic and military support are, are true. Um, it's pretty hard to be a, a mediator in a conflict if you're, you know, sort of actively um, actively supporting an armed invasion and, and something that, you know, the International Court of Justice, as of this morning, said was completely illegal and, and needed to stop immediately. Um, so it, it's... Um, it's just not clear to me that, that China's support for mediation is means that they would take an active role. It's more like this is what we would like to see because this is you know this this stuff has some risks to us and we'd really rather you let us you know continue to um, pursue our our own interests and not mess this up for China. Thanks. Yeah, um, sort of the, the wouldn't it be nice approach? Yeah, yeah, it's just a very self-interested approach, which I think is. Um, the consistent thread and through line in, in a lot of China's behavior since the crisis, in, since the invasion started in late February. So you mentioned that, that even the Chinese president might not have um, full information about what's going on or maybe leading up to it that he didn't. I'm wondering about the Chinese citizens. Like, do we know how they feel about this war? Are they even being told right now what's going on? Well, we don't because censorship in China is a, a is very much a long term phenomenon, and we we do know what Chinese social media is saying, um, and we know that, for example, certain proposals about hey, this is really not a good thing for China. China should rethink its support for Russia um, have been taken down or censored in the Chinese information system, um, and we also know that Chinese social media. Um, is really very much a space where pro-Russian messaging is amplified and reinforced. Um, but And that's been true for a long time. So um, Chinese social media tends to echo this idea that it's, it's NATO's fault, that, um, you know, this, this really is something that NATO and the United States are, are responsible for, um, not Russia itself. And so... Um, you know, it's very, first of all, you know, because there's so much censorship, it's very, very hard to, to gauge. I know I have some, some colleagues who do excellent work who are tracking what's being said in the Chinese social media space and what censorship is occurring. But we don't have, a, I think, a clear, 100 percent clear sense of that. What we do know is that the things that are allowed to stay up um, kind of, you know, are consistent with the official line by and large, which is very much a pro-Russian talking point, in some cases even using the same rhetoric, and actually in many cases amplifying Russian disinformation as with a lot of the claims about these, you know, biolabs in Ukraine, which which the Russian, um, uh, you know, government has put out and which are, are just, um, you know, another example of anti-American disinformation campaigns. So, Sheena, in our final moments here, this is such a big, complex story. Um, what are, I guess, uh, I'm stumbling in our final moments here. What are you going to be watching as the situation continues to unfold? Um, I'll be watching to see whether there's any any sign of uh, disagreement among Putin's inner circle, because those mm-hmm. are the, pe- the only people he's really accountable to at, at this point. Um, I'll be watching to see if there's an, a meaningful change in, in, in what China does, not what China says, but what it actually it does. Um, and then obviously, like many of us, I've been watching just the inspiring... Um, you know, fight that the Ukrainian people and leadership are, are putting up in defense of their own freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just 
um, and very much hoping that they're successful and that from a humanitarian perspective um, that this is able to be brought to a, a quick end so that fewer men, women, and especially children um, are killed by the, the conflict. Well, Sheena Chestnut-Greitens, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Sheena is an associate professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Today's episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.